0: Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Well, good morning, everyone. Josh said that it's by grace we get to hear from the Master of the Universe. For the record, I am not the Master of the Universe. Um, I believe he meant the Holy Spirit uh, there. It is, uh, it's good to be together, my friends. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hosea. Hosea. Hosea is immediately following some of the bigger books like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. Then you come to the book of Hosea, which is where we are going to be today as well as a number of weeks into the future. Uh, as the Lord will allow, we're starting a, a study of the Old Testament books of the Minor Prophets. If you were with us last week, we looked a little bit at uh, sort of a, a background of the Old Testament to give us an understanding of where the Minor Prophets fit into all of that. So um, that's available for you to listen to if you weren't with us. Uh, a lot of people have asked about the slides and things like that from last week, the timelines and stuff. That's available online as well. So you could check all that stuff out to put these things sort of where they fit. And we'll, we'll try and go back and do that a little bit here and there during our studies. Uh, But it is certainly good to be here uh, with you. Thank you so much for your patience with us during this long process and us telling you, uh, don't worry, it's coming soon. And I'm sure we're going to be in by Christmas 2017. Uh, And it'll be, you know, Easter, it'll be this, it'll be that. And it's just a process. It took time, frustrating at times, but uh, whatever. You know what I mean? Like, this is life. Life is frustrating. Uh, Amen? Yeah, you know, so there you go. Soon we'll be in heaven um i said that to one guy and i said soon you'll be in heaven and he's, he was a little bit of an older fella and he was like what do you mean by that you know <laughs> and whatever that ah, you'll be out. anyway let's pray father thank you for uh the ability to gather thank you for the word lord I, I can't imagine what we would do if we didn't have the word to come now and sit and to to learn from we would just sort of sing some songs smile um rub shoulders with one another but You've blessed us with the ability to know truth through the Word of God, and you preserved it through the ages um, so that we can gather here. Lord, you've blessed us in this nation in particular with the ability to have it in our hands, Lord, uh, and to have multiple copies of it scattered throughout our houses and in our cars and, and different things like that. Lord, help us to honor your Word, to respect it as it deserves to be, and to sit under it. Whether we gather together here or we're just alone in our easy chair at home, we want your word uh, to speak into the deep places of our hearts. um, That we might know you in a deeper way. We might know your will for our lives as we seek to walk therein. Um, So bless this time as well. Use your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, we're in the book of uh, Hosea And Hosea, you may recall, and I'm going to reference back many times to our study last time together, uh, Hosea is one of those books that's part of that prophetic style of literature. And so chronologically, it doesn't just pop up in our scriptures uh, after the, the book that comes before it and chronologically the one that comes after it. it. It sort of stands alone, and so we have to begin to understand some things about it. The books of the prophets, whether that's Isaiah or all the way through Malachi and those 17 different books, they cover about a 400-year period of time, and some of them come toward the beginning of that, some of them come toward the end of that. They were written approximately 800 B.C. to 450 B.C., and if you remember your, history, your study of history, that's during the time period leading up to, during, and after the various exiles that the children of Israel went through. And we know that the children of Israel went through two captivities. They went through the Assyrian captivity, which was roughly around the 700s. And they went through the Babylonian captivity, which was roughly in the 500s or the 600s uh, or so there. And so these books all fit during that particular time period let me remind you also of a couple of other things as we move through the nation of israel becomes a people during the days of abraham and that's about two thousand years before christ and abraham is called out by god he wants to raise up a nation through this man he's an older man he's 75 years old has no children but the lord says i'm going to give you a child and through that child An offspring of people will come. There'll be a nation. And even through that child, the Messiah himself will come. Well, Abraham's descendant, his grandson, is a guy by the name of Jacob. And it's during the time of Jacob that the people begin to grow exponentially. So, whereas it was Abraham and his wife, then it would be the 12 tribes of Jacob, also known as Israel. And before long, that group of 12 would grow to 70 which would grow somewhere to between three to four million people. And so the nation of Israel, within a few generations, about 500 years or so, would grow to be a large group of people, about half the size of the current nation of Israel. And it was those three to four million people that make their way out of slavery, and they begin to go to the place that God had promised to Abraham 575 years earlier. They begin to make their way to the promised land. Today we call that the land of Israel. Back then it was known as Canaan. And God promised, I'm going to give you this land and your descendants will possess this land. Well, they do. And Joshua, Moses dies, Joshua comes on the scene. So within a generation of coming out of Israel, they begin to acquire the promised land. That's about the year 1400. Soon thereafter, kings would be appointed, and you have the first of kings, Saul, then you have David, and then you have Solomon. That brings us to around the year 1000, and unfortunately, in that year, there was a split in the nation. And the nation underwent a civil war, divided itself, the people of God, divided themselves into two peoples of God, if you will. There was the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, and there was the southern kingdom, which was made up of the two tribes. The northern kingdom kept the name Israel, Though I think that's a misnomer, it seems more to me that that would have been appropriate for the southern kingdom. But nonetheless, the northern kingdom kept the name Israel. The southern kingdom went by the name of the largest of their two tribes, the tribe of Judah. And from the immediate start, and this is important, you'll see in a moment. From the immediate start, the northern kingdom began to go its own way. And so not only did they go their own way and appoint their own king to rule over them, But they went their own way, and they began to worship and serve other gods as well, false gods, as the surrounding nations did as well. And this is what their new king, this man's name is King Jeroboam. Now, just to throw you off, the the king of Judah is Rehoboam. All right, so that's just to keep you on your toes. But King Jeroboam, he says this, 1 Kings 12, I think it's going to be on the screen, yeah? It says, so the king took counsel. And he made two calves of gold. Doesn't that sound familiar? That's what happened in Exodus. That was wrong then. It's still wrong. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, Jerusalem's south of the northern kingdoms, but it's elevated. And so everybody goes up to Jerusalem, up the mountains to the city of Jerusalem there. And every year, the children of Israel, the Jewish people, they had to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the various feasts that would be taking place there. And King Jeroboam, his advisors, they recognize if the people go back to Jerusalem and worship God down there, their hearts are gonna be won back to the the people of Judah. And so we gotta come up with a new plan. And his new plan is let's make our own gods, let's set them up in a place where people can come and worship. And we'll just tell them, these are now the gods that had previously delivered you. And so they create their own gods. And the northern kingdom ran after that idolatry. I mentioned to you last week that there was not one of the 17 kings of Israel which did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. 17 kings in the northern kingdom, every one of them did evil and ran after the foreign gods and was indicative of the people that would go after those foreign gods. And it's to that northern kingdom, this is the point, you're like, didn't we do this last week? It's to that northern kingdom that Hosea ministers. Okay? And so, as we showed you last week in our slides, if you were with us, some of the prophets ministered primarily to the northern kingdom, some of them ministered primarily to the southern kingdom. Hosea is an example of a fellow who ministered to the northern kingdom. Now, Chapter 1, it begins this way. Now, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So you see there the division, right? There's those kings of Judah. And then you see that there is this one king, Jeroboam of Israel. And Jeroboam ruled a lot longer. And so he was able to have three or four contemporary kings in the south, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now, if you scan down, look at verse 2 for a moment. We'll come back and talk about one a little better in a moment. It says, now, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom.'" For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. I imagine if you're like me, the, the word that jumps out there is, take, or phrase is, take a wife of whoredom. Uh, but I don't want to talk about that for now. I, I'll come back to it. I want to talk about that little phrase that says, first spoke. And the idea that is being communicated there when it says that these were the words the Lord first spoke through Hosea is that Isaiah, or excuse me, Hosea has gone back after the fact and recorded these events. And so the book that we have, each of those events likely have already occurred, at at the very least chapters 1 through 3, when he went back and he began to write these things down. And so it says, this is back when the Lord first spoke to Hosea, this is the event that occurred. And so going back then to verse 1, notice the names of when this occurred. It was during the reign of each of those kings that are listed there. And mention is first made of the four kings of the southern kingdom. Not Again, not because that's who he ministered to, but as a point of reference. Mention is also made to this king, Jeroboam. And it's helpful for us to have those kings of the south, because that gives us a time frame of when Hosea ministered. The northern kingdom had two different Jeroboams. And if he just simply said he ministered during the days of Jeroboam, or, and he didn't add the son of Joash, then we would, well, when exactly was that? Was that back around the year 1000? Was it around the year Uh, 800 and into the 700s? Well, we know it was during the into the 700s because of when all these southern kings were ruling as well. The first Jeroboam ruled from 930 to 910 approximately. This particular Jeroboam rules from 790 to 750. And so we'll refer to him as Jeroboam II. He's the second of the Jeroboams that ruled in the northern kingdom We also look up at, you can see it on your screen, look in your Bibles, chapter seven, verse five. Notice there in the context, and we'll get to chapter seven someday, but in the context, it's talking about the Northern Kingdom and it says on the day of our king. And so it's our king, he's ministering and he's from the Northern Kingdom. And again, as we go through the book, you're gonna see again and again references to the Northern Kingdom used by the various names like Samaria and Edom, and other things like that. And we'll talk about them as we come to each of them. It was as Hosea ministered that uh, the foretold coming judgment that God revealed to Hosea, it actually came during his ministry. And so that judgment that he said would come did come. Hosea ministered somewhere conservatively 40 years or so of ministry more likely 50 years and perhaps even as many as 60 years, Hosea heard the voice of the Lord and he went and he shared that with the people of the, new, uh, of the northern kingdom. And sadly, they didn't listen. And so the, the prophecies that he gave were fulfilled uh, and the people were judged. And we'll spend time considering that as well as we make our way through. As I said, the northern kingdom was taken into captivity by the Assyrians. And they were taken into captivity in 722 bc that's a date you should jot down that's one of those dates that a lot of things hinge on in the bible 722 bc the start of the assyrian captivity for the northern kingdoms all right let's move on here you done with the history lesson well hosea we read the verse is an unusual prophet would you agree Unusual in the sense of go marry a prostitute, that's kind of unusual that you would think so, we'll talk about it. But he's an unusual prophet in that not only did God speak through Hosea, so he gave him a word to speak to the people, but God decided he was going to speak through the actions of Hosea's life as well. And so many of our prophets that we find in the scriptures, God gave them a word, they relayed that word to other people. In this instance, he says, I want to use you, your life circumstances as a lesson to teach people as well. And someone has called this the drama of Hosea's life. God was going to put on a play to teach a lesson to other people. And it was going to be for the purpose of making various points that he wanted to make. He'd been saying it for a lot, people weren't listening. And so he says, now I'm gonna show it to you as well. Now that's unusual, but it's not unheard of. And there are other examples in the scripture where God would tell prophets to do certain things in order to make a point. We learn in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 20, that God did this with that prophet. And he tells Isaiah to walk around Israel barefoot and naked for three years. Now, if you saw a barefoot naked man, would you think that was a prophet of God? Probably not, but that's what the Lord had told him to do. He said, go and loose the sackcloth from your waist. Take off the sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. And that got people's attention, no doubt. And from there, he began to speak. We see in the book of Jeremiah that he was instructed to go buy a loincloth. Now, a loincloth is a fun way of saying, underwear go buy a new pair of underwear go down to the target get yourself a new pair of underwear wear it for a day or so then i want you to take it off bury it in the mud on the banks of a river and then you're going to dig it up again and you're going to show it to the people and you're going to say what i tell you to say and so very proud this is what i want you to do his actions were going to be used to communicate a message from the lord and they would serve as a vivid picture wouldn't you agree That would get your attention. You'd be drawn to it. Now, in the case of Hosea, (coughs) excuse me, in the case of Hosea, the vivid picture was going to be his entire life. It wasn't going to just be one quick event buy some underwear and bury it and then take it back out. It was going to be the picture of his entire life, his family, his marriage, his children, and so on. And I honestly think that this drama, this pageant here that is before us, it provides for us two very important things. One, the most clearest pictures of just how despicable sin is. And at the same time, the clearest and loveliest picture of God's grace and God's love. And they're both found in the same book. And so we talk about what is the good news. Well, the good news is the gospel of Jesus Christ that will forgive you of your sin. But you cannot have the good news without the bad news. You can't have the good news that Jesus will save you, he'll forgive you, he'll cleanse you, and he'll pass on to you his righteousness, even as he takes your unrighteousness upon himself, unless there's mention of judgment that is coming upon sin. And we see both of those things in here. We see the despicableness, I'm not sure that's a word, of sin, but we see the the amazing beauty of God's grace and God's love. Somebody has called the book of Hosea the second greatest story ever told. There was an old play in the 1960s, at some, or a movie, called The Greatest Story Ever Told. I think Charlton Heston had a supporting role in the movie. Somebody bigger than Charlton Heston was the star. The Greatest Story Ever Told, and that's the story of Jesus Christ. They put it in film there. We should probably watch it together. It's probably no good nowadays, but I'm sure it was great then. Wait, old people, Yeah, you enjoyed it. Very nice. Well, Hosea has been called the second greatest story ever told because in so many ways, it's, it paints a picture of the coming of Jesus Christ to forgive folks of their sin. And as we go, I'll continue to try to weave that idea through our study. The name Hosea, it means salvation. Hosea comes from the same root as the word Joshua. Joshua is a familiar name we know from the Old Testament. In the new testament where there was sort of this greek transliteration we get the name jesus all three of those words in hebrew they come from the same place and hosea means salvation and it's a fitting name for this prophet of this particular book because this book is all about salvation turning to the lord from your sin and being saved That judgment comes upon sin but the lord is willing to save people now the days of jeroboam the second they were glorious days In the nation of israel in some ways the northern kingdom was thriving their dow jones was higher than it had ever been in the history of their nation there was luxury in the nation materialism abounded in the nation the nation was free and surrounding nations weren't bothering it and they weren't having difficulty and that's part of the reason they didn't have to put all their money toward a a defense of sorts and so they could invest it back into their society national security was at its highest but despite that there was an affinity for false gods and there was this love for the idolatrous practices even while there was an apparent devotion to the ways and the practices of Judaism even while there was a fervor for being a good Jewish religious adherent the reality is there was the worshiping and the serving of these false gods And as Isaiah, who was Hosea's contemporary, said, as Amos, who was both of their contemporaries as well, as they made it clear, the hearts of the people, though they were religious, was empty, and it was shallow, and it was corrupt. And that corruption was rampant throughout the nation, spiritual corruption. And the people had convinced themselves, because we are materially blessed, God must be pleased with us. And I think many people in America think the same way as well. That God must be pleased with us because look how much blessing he has poured out on our nation. The life of Hosea is going to vividly show that the people had been unfaithful to the Lord, were presently being unfaithful to the Lord, and they would soon experience the consequences of that unfaithfulness. Let's continue. Verse 2. I'm going to read through verse 9. It says, Now when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, The Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now, I'm I'm really interested to see how the fifth and sixth grade teachers are handling this chapter today, Um, but that's their problem. Uh, Verse three, he says, So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Parents, by the way, in the car, you might get that question. So, what's whoredom? All right, and you can have fun with that yourself. All righty, verse four, now the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. Verse three, he's gonna bear a son, she is. Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Verse six, she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I'll save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. And when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived yet again and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Now, Hosea's ministry, at least as it's recorded here in Hosea chapter 1, it began, or it was to begin by his taking this wife of whoredom, And she's a harlot. We have her name. Her name is Gomer. uh, Together, this is part of his ministry, together uh, they would have, or they would raise children, as it says there, of whoredom. And God's purpose here is to dramatize for the nation what the nation itself had been doing in their relationship with him. And they had, as verse 2 says, they committed great whoredom by forsaking the Lord, running after these false gods, worshiping and serving them, it, again and again throughout the Old Testament and even into the New. In the New Testament, the church is referred to as the Bride of Christ. In the Old Testament, it paints this picture as the, the people of, of God, the Jewish people, as the wife of God. And so they've been running after their false gods, and so it's spiritual adultery, if you will, that idolatry is. And so Hosea is told to do these things. And in obedience, Hosea obeys the Lord's command. And he takes for himself this woman, her name is Gomer. She's the daughter of Diblaim. He takes her as his wife. Now, there is some discussion as to whether Hosea, excuse me, as whether Gomer was a prostitute when he married her, Or that God was telling her he was going to marry this girl who was going to go on to become a prostitute. And so there's different discussion amongst commentators as to what is exactly going on. I'm of the opinion it's the latter. But the text doesn't really tell us, and so an argument can be made one way or the other. But if my understanding is correct, then Hosea marries Gomer knowing that she will one day be unfaithful to him and that she will be unfaithful to him in the most egregious of ways, ultimately culminating, we'll read this a little bit later, in his having to go and pay the price of a prostitute to take his own wife home uh, to their house again here. We see that in chapter 3. And God is going to dramatically reveal to Hosea and through him to other people the exact experience that he himself has undergone in his own marriage relationship with the Jewish people. And as Gomer would do, so the Jewish people had done, and they would continue to do, and they would unfaithfully go after their spiritual lovers. They would go into harlotry themselves. And so God asks him, I want you to do the very thing I've been going through. I want you to marry this prostitute. Hosea, you're going to play the part of God in our drama. Gomer, you're going to play the part of the people. Hosea would be faithful to his wife because the Lord is always faithful. Gomer would go astray because the people of Israel had continually gone astray. And God is inviting Hosea into a place where he can understand the betrayal that he himself has experienced. And that's a hard place to be, isn't it? I think a lot of times as we get involved in ministry, and we serve in some way or another, and we work with youth, or we work with the children, or we work at a church setting much like this, or a ministry of some sorts outside of this, we begin to get an insight a little bit into some of the, the pain and the hurt that the Lord himself feels. Because I'll be quite frank, ministry is not always rosy and wonderful. And there's difficult times that you go through sometimes in ministry, and you are invited into, Paul would call this, the fellowship of the Lord's suffering he said in Philippians chapter 3 that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable conformable unto his death there's a place of pain and Hosea was being invited into that place of pain that seems mean of God isn't it God does a great teaching in the midst of that as he sort of lets us come into his presence, lets us understand what it is he has experienced. He does a wonderful teaching in our heart in the deepest places, and Hosea was going to discover that. Verse 3 goes on in our passage, he went, he took Gomer. I think it's safe to assume, as both a godly man, and quite frankly, just as a human being in general, that Hosea would never have married a practicing prostitute unless the Lord himself commanded him to go and marry this particular person or even a person who he saw would become a prostitute and so this decision of his it shows us some insight into Hosea insight into his heart insight into his character that he would be even willing to obey the most difficult of the Lord's commands and he marries this woman and as we read in verse three she conceives and the Lord says you are to name him Jezreel Now the word Jezreel, the name Jezreel, it means scattered. And so the birth then of this little boy was meant to speak of the coming judgment in which the the nation of Israel was going to be scattered among the nations. To use God's words a few verses later or a verse or so later, it says he would put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And that scattering, that end to the... Uh, kingdom of the house of Israel, that would come at the hands of the Assyrians. It's recorded for us in our Bibles. It's recorded for us in history. In our Bibles, we read it in Second Kings chapter 17. It says, the people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. And so Israel was exiled from their own land until Assyria, until this day We have symbols uh, complementing this here. Interesting thing to note about the Assyrians. It's, it's interesting to see because we have two captivities that took place one right after the other recorded for us in Scripture. The Assyrians and the Babylonians. They had very different styles of conquering a people. The Assyrians and the Babylonians and other nations after them, empires after them, they had essentially become the world ruling powers of their day. And the Assyrians, their style was they would go into an area, they would conquer the people, and then they would take those people and split them all up and send them to other parts of their empires. And even as that land now became vacant, they would, excuse me, they would conquer other places and scatter some of the people in the land of Israel. You you picking up what I'm saying here? Babylon was very different. Babylon would come and take the whole group and say, we're moving you over to here and this is where you're going. And so it's, it's fascinating to me that the very method whereby the Assyrians attack the people, take the people and scatter them in their kingdom, is the exact word that the Lord uses uh, to say, this is what's going to happen to these people. And again, that word Jezra, it means to scatter. So that second Kings passage, it goes on, and it, the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, from Kutha, from Ava, from Hamath, from Sepharvaim, and place them in the cities of Samaria, that's the northern kingdoms of Israel, instead of the people of Israel. You see how he takes some people from different places and sort of scatters them in there. That was their means. And that proved to be an effective means of con- uh, conquering a people because it disoriented them. And their, their family itself could be split up. And now they're pretty much in a new land, and they're helpless. And it broke the people. And it further facilitated bringing them into the place of submission. And the same thing that he did with other nations, he did with the nation of Israel. He scattered them among the lands that he had conquered. You'll also notice it says in our verse here, verse 4, it makes mention of the punishment of the house of Jehu in the valley of Jezreel. And that this is another reason why this kid is supposed to be called Jezreel. This child, he's Jezreel then for two reasons. Number one is because of the word scattered. The second is because of what's going to happen to the house of Jehu in the valley of uh, Jezreel. Now you say, well, who's Jehu? Jehu was the great grandfather of Jeroboam II. And he himself was a king. Jehu is the man who overthrew the wicked Ahab and his wicked wickeder wife uh, Jezebel. Many of us are familiar with the name of Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab was the king of Israel, a wicked, wicked king. His wife was even worse. And it was Jehu who came in and overthrew Ahab and set up a dynasty of his own, a dynasty that would go on for about 102 years. And Jeroboam, is pretty much the last of the rulers from that particular dynasty. His son would take over for six months. Um, Jeroboam ruled for 40 years or so there. And so uh, the second reason why it's called Jezreel is this idea that judgment is coming upon the house of Jehu in the valley of Jezreel. So his first son is named God Will Scatter. Where did Assyria conquer the northern kingdom? Historically? Yes. In the valley of Jezreel. So the Lord said that's where it's going to happen and historically that's where it happened. Those of you that have gone with us to Israel, the valley of Jezreel includes the plains of Megiddo and we go to Mount Megiddo and we look out over all that open field. That's the area of the valley of Jezreel. Today they call it the Jezreel Valley uh, and it's a a very plush land. That's where Israel was conquered by the Assyrians Uh, and taken off into their captivity, just as the Lord said. Now the drama continues, verse 6. Notice she conceived again, she bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name, no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them all. Now look at verse 3 for a second, because there it says, And she bore him a son. Look at how it's slightly different in verse 6. No mention of him is made. No mention of Hosea here. It just simply says, And she conceived and bore a daughter. This is the child of harlotry. This baby is not Hosea's baby here. The name of their third child really drives that point home. The name of the third child is not my people. All right, And so that especially drives home here that is not Hosea's son. Look at chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. It says, upon her children also I have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. Right? So she has already now, the first child was theirs together, but she has gone into her harlotry and in the process of that prostitution has conceived two different children, a little girl and a little boy. And Hosea's beloved wife of his youth has gone astray, just as the Lord said she would did. And again, Hosea is invited into the fellowship of, the, of Christ's suffering. And he's beginning to feel the pain of his wife going astray, just as the children of Israel went astray from the Lord. Well, he calls this second child here, verse 6, he calls her no mercy. Your version may have the English transliteration of the Hebrew. A transliteration is different from a translation. A transliteration is, this is kind of how you pronounce it in English. And your version might say that her name was Lo-Ruhamah. But that means no mercy. And so many of our versions just call it that. And they say, call her name no mercy because as it says here the the Lord would no longer show his mercy to the house of Israel but instead was going to remove his hand of protection so that they could feel the sting of judgment and every time Hosea would call this little girl little no mercy it would be a reminder to him and to others that God's coming judgment God's judgment was soon coming and that exile was on the horizon for the northern kingdom Now, this idea of God delivering them over to judgment, not showing mercy any longer, that makes a lot of us uncomfortable, doesn't it? That's not the God we like to think of. That's not the the God of the Bible. God has to always be merciful and keep showing mercy and keep forgiving people and so on. Well, God is forgiving and God is merciful and God is long-suffering and those are aspects of his character. But when a person or a people insists upon their own way, when they persevere in their own sin, despite God's many warnings, the time comes when God's daily mercies are withdrawn and that person is given over to experience the consequences of their rebellion. Why? Because God has had it? No. Even in the consequences of those rebellion, his purpose is that they might turn from their sin. And he's tried to say, you know, you really shouldn't do that. You know, that's not a good idea. Don't do that. And finally, he needs to give the spanking, so to speak, to wake the individual up. And so he's going to let them go. He's no longer going to show them mercy. Just as he knew Hosea's wife would go into harlotry, even after they married, he knew these people would go into rebellion. They would not repent. And that he would no longer show them his daily mercy. Verse 7, I'll have mercy on the house of Judah, however, and I'll save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. So now, historically, we'll tell you this, the northern tribe had pushed things to the point that judgment came. Foreign captivity came upon the land. It became a necessity to wake the people up. The house of Judah, however, the southern kingdom, they had not yet come to that particular point. Now, Judah's not a perfect people, certainly. But every time that the Lord sent someone to them they would repent they would be returned to the Lord they would walk according to his ways they'd put away their foreign gods and so the prophets would come their purpose would be accomplished and they would repent of their sin and so here we see that the northern kingdoms being judged but not the southern kingdom the Assyrians came into the northern kingdom but they stopped and they didn't go just across the street and begin to head into the southern kingdom, and it's not because they didn't try to; they had planned to. We read about it in our scripture, Second Kings. This is why it is so good to read all different parts of your Bible together. But in Second Kings, chapter 18 and 19, you hear of a man. Maybe you've heard this name. His name is Sennacherib, and Sennacherib was the king of the Assyria. He had a like a general that worked for him, who was the Rabshika. I like saying that. I was hoping that I could work it in today. All right. And so Sennacherib and the Rabshakeh, they came and their plan was to attack Judah. They went to Hezekiah and they said, look, where are all the other gods of all the other nations? Were they able to save them from us? Just give up. Now, many people did give up to the Assyrians before the Assyrians either even raised a single weapon because the Assyrians historically were a very brutal people. And so they essentially gave you the option. Look, you can come with us without fighting back and we'll be relatively uh, nice to you in the process of taking you into captivity or we'll just destroy you. And we'll put huge fishing hooks inside of your mouth and we'll drag you along where we're gonna take you. And we'll impale your children right out in the middle of the, the city square. And we'll do all these horrible things to your wives and things like that. Your choice, you wanna fight us or not? And many people would just say, All right, we give in. And Hezekiah, when they came to Hezekiah, the king of the southern kingdom, when they come to him, he essentially is like, Can you give me like a day? And he goes to the Lord and he says, Lord, we're in trouble. And he cries out to the Lord. And the Lord essentially says to him, in different words, what he says here to Hosea. And he says, That I will have mercy on the house of Judah, I will save them by the Lord their God. And I will not save them by bow or sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. I'm not going to do the normal way of fighting a war. I'm going to do something different. We read about that in 2 Kings 19, I believe. I'll read it to you. We'll see if that's it. It'll be fun. It says, therefore, thus says the Lord God concerning the king of Assyria, he will not come into the city he will not shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Now, how did he do that? How did he get him to turn around? Continuing, he says, in that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000, that's a huge army, of the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, so he didn't kill all of them. When the people arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed, and he went home, and he lived at Nineveh. And God had preserved the southern kingdom without bow or without sword or without war or without horses and without horsemen as the passage goes on when sennacherib got home he went to his church he tried to worship there and his sons came in and they killed him and a new fellow began to rule in his stead but you see here that god was able to distinguish the northern kingdom from the southern kingdom and judgment came upon the northern kingdom but for the southern kingdom it was spared. It wasn't just some random thing, some enemy nations coming in. God was ultimately sovereign in all of these things. Now we read that and we might think, well, Judah deserved mercy. Nobody deserves mercy. If somebody deserves mercy, it's not mercy. The Lord chose to show his mercy. And he's ever and he does by the way, to the northern kingdom and to the southern kingdom He's ever looking to accomplish his best for his people. And sometimes that happens through the demonstration of his mercy in our daily lives. Other times it happens by him taking his hand off and letting us experience the consequences of our actions so that we might learn from the pain of those actions. Continuing, let's go on. He says in verse 8, And so she weaned no mercy, and she conceived and bore a son. Notice no mention of him. And the Lord said, this time call his name, not my people, for you're not my people and I am not your God. Again, Hosea forgave his wife for that first circumstance, at the very least one time where she conceived uh, from another man. And she goes right back to that again. Same thing that happens in our relationship with the Lord, or in this case, the people of Israel. She names this child Lo-Ami, which means not my people. And every time that Hosea calls out to this little boy, Loammi, just like it was with his middle sister, it's a reminder that this was not the people of God. He was going to take his hand of protection from them. He was going to allow them to go off into judgment. The Lord's never going to force his love upon anyone. He offers himself. He offers himself repeatedly, but he doesn't force himself upon a people. And he has offered himself repeatedly to this northern kingdom. And they continued to rebuff him and rebuff him and rebuff him. And from the very beginning, that kingdom had been a rebellious and unfaithful people. And they would not forsake their spiritual adultery. And the result then is the Lord refuses to own them as his own, so to speak. And he delivers them up to judgment. I don't think this is so much a penalty against them as much as it is the stating of a simple fact. You don't want to be my people, you're not my people. You want to go your own way, go ahead your own way. Now a moment ago I said, for a time, I didn't say it, I should have said it, for a time the Lord refuses to own them. Look at the next three verses. It says, now the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you're not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. Verse 11, the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. So notice, God promises judgment here upon the nation of Israel, but he makes it clear that it is not a judgment that will last forever. Because as we see in these verses here, that after judgment, there's going to come a day of prosperity, a day of increase, And there's going to come a day of blessing upon the Jewish people. So the judgment that he is speaking of is only, at the hand of the Assyrians, is only a temporary judgment. That the Lord would not cast off the Jewish people forever. Now, grasp that and put yourself in the shoes of Hosea. And your wife has gone astray and you took her back in, you went to counseling, you figured it out, and she goes astray again and probably again and again and again. So much so that the only way to get her back is to go down and pay to the price of a prostitute to get her to come back. Now, so put yourself there, and what's going on in your heart? How are you feeling about that? Is this a woman you want to quickly offer your forgiveness to? Probably not. And yet, we see here that that's the Lord. And the Lord says he's going to take his hand of protection from them, but he wouldn't do so eternally. And that he would bless them eventually with prosperity, with increase. And with great blessing there's actually four blessings listed here in this particular passage the first one is found in verse 10 and that speaks of great national increase that the people of Israel they would grow to be a great nation population wise we see he also speaks there in that passage that they shall be like the sand of the sea sounds familiar doesn't it Bible students that's God's promise to Abraham When God called Abraham out and finally Isaac was born uh, and that which God said would happen was beginning now to happen, uh, one time he takes him out. He says, look at the stars of the sky. That's as many descendants you're going to have. Sand here on the seashore, that's as many descendants that you are going to have. God reminds us through Hosea that the covenant he made with Abraham, he would fulfill. Even as he takes his hand of protection off of his people, he would fulfill That covenant. Second promise that we see here is also found in verse 11, and that is that the nation would once again be reunited. And so the nation had been divided for almost 500 years. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and and it seemed irreparable. They're never going to get back together. And yet we see this promise that they would become one people again, the nation would be reunited. reunited. Look at verse 11. It says, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. Also speaking of this idea of reuniting the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, but going beyond that, and I think with New Testament understanding, that's the Messiah. Who's going to be their one head? It's going to be the Messiah. It's speaking there of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul the Apostle would write a section of the book of Romans that's given people trouble, Christians trouble. And if you look at Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, it speaks about the nation of Israel. And it even makes this statement or the people of Israel. It says, and in this way all Israel will be saved. Now I say that gives Christians trouble is because much of the Jewish people in our society today, they don't recognize Jesus as Messiah. And so how is it that they can be saved if they don't recognize Jesus as Messiah? Is it simply, well, they're Jewish, they have Jewish blood, so they get to go to heaven too? Well, that contradicts the scripture, doesn't it? That Jesus Christ came and he gave his life, people must receive that gift of salvation through his work on the cross, whether you're a Jewish person or a Gentile person. So when will all Israel be saved, what that Paul is talking about? All Israel will be saved when there is a national turning to the Lord. Well, they'll have one head of one people. Hosea is referring to that. He's talking about the the day's uh, future, even to yet us. This is the event, what Paul talks about, all Israel will be saved. What Hosea talks about, where they'll have one head, the Messiah. The prophet Zechariah, he said it this way. Again, notice all different parts of the scripture that come together to give clarity to the scripture. The prophet Zechariah said, I'll pour out on the house of David... And the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace, for pleas of mercy. That means they'll cry out for God's mercy. So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps bitterly over the loss of a firstborn. There's going to come a day. When the people of Israel, the Jewish people, their heart, their eyes will be opened, the blindness will be lifted, and they'll be able to see that Jesus Christ indeed, the one whom they have pierced, rejected, is indeed their Messiah. And despite their continual and repeated sin, there will come a day yet future when God will pour out his blessing upon the Jewish people, and they will see the Lord for who he is, God's promised Savior. Now, finally, look at this prophecy. This goes into chapter 2, verse 1. We see here that the nation will be forever restored. And he says, say to your brothers, you are my people. Say to your sisters, you have received mercy. And despite despite their sin, God promises restoration. A restoration so complete that the division that, would la- that lasted some 500 years would be completely and totally and forever erased. They would be, once again, one people, and they would recognize Christ to be their Savior. Now, there are people that teach that the Lord has cast off the Jewish people forever, that when they rejected Jesus as Messiah, the Lord rejected them, and the Lord is not interested any longer with the Jewish people, that the church has become the spiritual Israel and all of those blessings that speak of God pouring out his blessing on the Jewish people, that actually applies to the church. I do not believe that teaching and I don't think you should believe it as well because that has some implications for your walk with the Lord as well if indeed that is what God has done. The church is not spiritual Israel where all of those promises now transfer to the church. The church is the church and Israel is Israel. Now, we have a nation in the world today that is called Israel. But when we talk about Israel in in this sense here, we're talking about the Jewish people. The Jewish people are the Jewish people. The church is the church. And God is not through with his covenant people, the Jewish people. And he's not through with the nation uh, of Israel. And there is coming a day when those to whom he said, you're not my people, will once again be called his people. Now, there are some that see the fulfillment of, of Hosea's prophecy during the days of Cyrus. And Cyrus was the king of Persia. And when the Assyrians were on the scene, the Assyrians would be defeated. Then there would be the Babylonians and the Babylonians would be defeated. And Persia would become the world ruling empire. And the world ruling empire inherited all the captives from the previous empire. And Cyrus was the king during that time period. We read about this in Daniel 5, I believe it is as well. And Cyrus, not specifically mentioned in Daniel, but the Persians are, Cyrus essentially says, look, you're my captives. If you want to go back to the land of your forefathers, you can go back to the land of your forefathers. Just be faithful to me. You know, be a good captive, so to speak. And so some people think that the return where God's, like this promise to Hosea was fulfilled during the days of Cyrus. I wouldn't agree with that. Very few Jews went back during the days of Cyrus. As little as 50,000 Jewish people returned during that time period. It was a very small percentage of the Jewish people. This event that Hosea speaks of, that Zechariah speaks of, that Paul speaks of, and others speak of in the scripture as well, it's an event yet future. And there is a day when the Lord has set a time where the people would no longer be divided but they would be one happy, united people under one head. And I believe that day has already begun. And some of you are students of prophecy and just students of the world. Again, there's a nation in the world that is called Israel. In 1948, miraculously reborn. After 1900 years or close to 1900 years of being scattered around the world, and even more than that, they came back as a people and they have their own nation. Jesus Christ is not yet their Messiah, though. And so we are just in the beginning, I would suggest, of the process of restoring and blessing the people of Israel. There's a prophecy found in the book of Ezekiel, somewhere around chapter 37 or so. And it speaks about the, these bones coming back to life, taking on flesh, this dead person coming back to life, taking on flesh, and once again living. And it's applied to the nation of Israel. It's fascinating. If you go to the nation of Israel and you go to the Holocaust Museum, we have a Holocaust Museum here in the United States, which is good in Washington, D.C. It's one-tenth of what they have there, as you can imagine, in the nation of Israel. And as you pull in there, you, you go under this... Uh, structure, this rock structure. It's like nice, it's pretty. I don't know what it's called. And and you go in and you go around this little loop and on the back side of that is that scripture about these bones being raised back up and living once again. Even the Jewish people today recognize the miracle of their being back in the land. But they don't yet know Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And one by one they do. People do. But as a nation of people, they don't yet. And they will. So, What are the lessons? What time are we leaving today? One? Is that when we're supposed to be done? I'm almost done here. Uh, Here are some lessons for us. Number one, the Lord will do what he says he will do. All right, The Lord will do. He told Hosea his wife was going to go astray. She went astray. He told Hosea these people will one day come back in the land. They came back in the land. The Lord's going to do what he said he is going to do. And you can trust him at his word. You might want to pick up for yourself a book of Bible promises. A little, little thing here that is listed. All the different promises of Scripture. The Lord is faithful to fulfill what he said he would fulfill. That will encourage you in your faith. The second thing we learn here is the pain and hurt of spiritual adultery. When we go astray, it hurts the Lord's heart. Just as parents, when your kids go astray, they rebel against you. They say some mean things about you. Man, no big deal. It is a big deal. It hurts your heart. And Hosea here is getting some insight into that. And he was instructed to experience that pain and he obeyed. And we can relate. We can understand what it would feel like for a man's wife to be unfaithful to him and to do it again and again and again, or a woman's husband to do so. Thirdly, we learn the lesson that God can indeed forgive The very worst of sins. Hosea plays the part of who in this drama? Of the Lord. And he forgives his wife at the very least twice. And he brings her back in. And we can see here that God can indeed forgive the very worst of sins that we can commit. Some of us look at our past and we say, you know what, I get it that God can forgive that and that and that, but he can't forgive what I've done. And the reality of things is we learn here that he can. Every one of us is far worse, and our sin is far worse than the sin that Gomer has committed when you compare it to our rebellion against the loving God. And it's for us that Christ died. Christ went to the cross for sinners, not saints. Jesus tells us a scenario where there were people that essentially said, "You know, I don't need a savior, I'm a pretty good guy, but you might want to talk to those folks over there. And jesus came and he said look it's the sick that need a physician and if you think you're well then there's nothing i can do for you but if you know you're sick i can heal you if you know you're a sinner i can forgive you i can wash you i can cleanse you and we must come to him and so any of us here that might be thinking the lord could never forgive me for what i've done you're wrong and i'll correct you the lord will forgive you if you come to him in repentance and then the fourth lesson that we have here is look, if you've been straying from the Lord, you've been wandering from the Lord, you've been doing your own thing, you've been walking in rebellion, somehow you've ended up here today, and we're not quite sure, you're not quite sure, why am I even here on Sunday? Probably the new building thing. But you've been straying and walking in rebellion and ignoring God's grace, or maybe even abusing God's grace. Know this, there is pain ahead for those that don't turn. The Lord loves you too much to let you just walk in your sin. He loves you too much. And if you're his child, he will let you feel the pain. He'll discipline you. I've shared this example before, particularly when my kids were young. We would discipline our kids when they were young, my wife and I, because we loved our kids. and We wanted them to grow up to be good to mom and dad. You know, just don't cause me any trouble. You know, this kind of thing. We love them and we discipline them. If other kids down the street were doing the same thing, it ain't worth my effort to get involved here. I'm not getting involved in this process or whatever. Let somebody else deal with them. You're looking at me like I'm a horrible person. I'm serious. It's hard to discipline. And I might say, knock it off, kid. But then I'm gone. I'm not going to make sure they knock it off. You understand? I'm not crazy. Right? Right? You got weird faces. All right? And so the Lord disciplines us. He loves us. He's not going to let us continue in our sin. He's going to do everything he can, including using pain and difficulty to break us. And so then let's learn the lesson through someone else. We don't have to go through that difficulty to learn the lesson of walking in God's ways. Somebody else already learned it for us. I don't have to put my hand on the hot fire because I know plenty of other people, I've heard stories of plenty of other people that put their hand on the hot fire to see if it indeed was hot. I don't have to do it because they already had the scars. All right? and so we learn the lesson vicariously through their difficulty. And finally this, allow the story of Hosea to cause each of us here to rejoice. We should rejoice. This is a heavy message. I'm sure some of you are kind of thinking like, you should probably tell a few more jokes. You know, we, we got some visitors and, and things like that here. How do we make jokes with this stuff? I'm sorry, I I was trying to throw one in here or there. uh, But this is a heavy message. But we rejoice that the Lord is willing to cleanse. Every one of us that are saved, you've come to the cross, you looked at your sin, and that Jesus Christ is a Savior that can forgive you of your sin and pay the penalty of your sin. Every one of us that are saved, we should rejoice at our salvation. And the longer we're Christians, the more it's kind of like, well, yeah, of course I'm saved. But we should go back to that place of where it all began. I've been forgiven. I've been cleansed. I've been washed. I'm in relationship with the Savior who I've sinned against again and again and again. The Apostle Peter, he said these words. And I think he's clearly thinking of Hosea. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And he's writing this about Christians. Once you had not received mercy but now you have. And that's the story of every one of us here that are followers of Christ. We were once scattered. There was no pity coming our way. We were not God's people, but now look at us. We're gathered together. We sit under his word. He ministers to our hearts. Amen. Praise the Lord for that. Amen. Let's pray. You got a little clap there. Praise the Lord. Lord, we are... We're asking you, I'm asking you, Lord, would you remind us of the wonder of our salvation today, this week? Lord, even as we make our way to other places, we're doing other things. Would you just flood our heart and our mind, perhaps in a way that you did very early on in our walk when we were made right with you, that we've been cleansed, forgiven, declared to be a child of the Lord? Father, I pray for any with us that don't yet know the Lord. Open up their heart. Reveal to them that they can be saved. Reveal to them that they need to be saved, forgiven, washed, and cleansed. And do that work even this morning. Lord, thank you again for this place, the ability to gather together with one another. We pray our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would like... I'm done. If you would like someone to pray with you, Maybe you have some questions and you want to talk about that as well. Then we want to encourage you. If you come up up to this area up here, we'll have some prayer counselors on the side. There's actually a a prayer room right outside of here as well. And if it needs to be a little more of a private conversation, they'll pull you back into that area. But we want to be praying for each other. And I want to encourage you. I'm going to leave in a second. Don't run out of the building. Take some time. Interact with other people, the fellowship hall, this room. Uh, Pray with other people. Encourage one another in their faith be a support to each other. Amen. Thank you for being here. Let's continue to worship. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.